Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. All right, um, today's readings, uh, we've got two of them. Uh, we're going to be from Psalm 12 um, and Proverbs 31. Um, so this one's, yeah, 112, 112. Um, It says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He is distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honour. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Um, and this is Proverbs 31.10 until the end of it. Um, it says, An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the, to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Noah. Two poems. I uh, don't know if one of them is more familiar to some of you than other. the other. Not sure. I thought about asking uh, how many of the women here have heard of Proverbs 31. Anyone been ever, asked, ever been asked, are you a Proverbs 31 woman? Or uh, any of the guys have ever been asked, are you looking for a Proverbs 31 wife? Um, I want to know if any of the guys have ever been asked, are you a Psalm 112 man? And any of the women been asked, are you looking for a Psalm 112 husband? Because <laughs> these two poems actually are very similar. 
Um, and they actually kind of, the way that they are translated sometimes obscures that. Um, but these two poems, they're both acrostic poems. So in the original language of them, they use the alphabet. And so they work their way through the alphabet line by line. Obviously, it's really difficult when you translate from one language to another to replicate that. Um, so just imagine that they are the A to Z, uh, both Psalm 112 and Proverbs 31 these poems that express these really amazing lives, these two lives well lived. Uh, the other, as I said, the, the, the reason I think that they um, sometimes get differentiated uh, is because of how we translate things like this. So um, Hebrew is a language a little bit like English that doesn't really have a way uh, of talking about an individual person uh, without gendering it. So to say, to call a person it is a bit offensive, right? So we, we kind of do things like say the one. Uh, and so a lot of the Bible where it uses male pronouns actually means, you know, it's meant to apply to everyone. And so what? the NIV translation does, for example, in Psalm 112, is translated as blessed is the one. And there's a truth to that, right? Because this psalm can apply to everyone. It's not meant to be written just for men. <laughs> um, but in the original, it is speaking about a man. And I think it obscures when you turn it into the one that it's a particular man. It seems to be actually telling the story or delighting and praising a particular life that this man has lived. Proverbs 31 obviously is written about a particular woman. That's kind of obvious because the female pronouns are only used for women. Uh, actually, what happens there it sometimes gets um, a little bit obscured. It's sometimes known as the wife of noble character. The word is woman. It's the same, you know, the word wife and, um, and woman are the same. The word man and husband are the same. It's quite obvious that this woman is a wife because she has a husband <laughs> and she has children. But it's not about her as a wife. It's about, again, this story of a particular life that this particular woman lived. And so you have these two poems that I think are kind of really nice parallels to each other. And so when Nick said to me, hey, we've been doing this series on James talking about wisdom. Would you like to come up and preach on maybe a wisdom psalm? I thought, oh, I'd really love to preach on these two wisdom poems and kind of set them together and ask when we put them together rather than getting caught up maybe in some of the specifics of how they have been used um, what is it that they encourage and inspire and challenge in all of us because the reality is particularly with Proverbs 31 it's sometimes been used as a little bit of a stick to beat people with uh, or a checklist to say well do you meet the criteria are you as amazing as this person <laughs> And that's really not what either of these poems are about. They're not meant to make us kind of measure ourselves against them and say, oh, no, I'm not quite as good as that. They're actually to inspire us, to give us examples, role models, people to look up to. You see, they are part of this rich tradition of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. So I know you've been looking at the book of James, which has a lot to say about wisdom and how wisdom is lived out in practice in things like generosity uh, and equity and uh, love and, and the ways that we uh, follow and, you know, avoiding temptation and avoiding uh, deception and the ways that we follow Jesus. But James didn't invent the idea of wisdom. In fact, Jesus didn't invent the idea of wisdom. Both of them in their teachings on wisdom are drawing on this rich history and this rich tradition that they have in the Old Testament of what we call wisdom literature. And that's a little bit unfamiliar to many of us because we don't really have a parallel in our world today. It was something that was very common for the ancients, this type of literature called wisdom literature. But I don't really have anything like it. Some people kind of liken it today to maybe like the self-help section at the library or the bookshop. Not 
really a good parallel at all. <laughs> uh, and yet there's something in that, right? Because there is some sense that wisdom literature is designed to pass on advice, to say, look at how I have lived my life and learn from it. To have a parent and a, to a child or a teacher to a student say, let me share with you the wisdom I have gleaned. And yet there is so much more to it than that because the wisdom tradition of the Old Testament also comes in this frame of the revelation of God himself to his people as the true source of wisdom and the community of God's people that they are called to live in. And so wisdom literature is always about living in right relationship with God and living in right relationship with the community of God's people. And if you take the Old Testament wisdom out of that context, you can kind of turn it into self-help advice, but you're really missing the point of what it's about. And so the Proverbs of the book of Proverbs can be kind of divorced from their context and you can say, well, here's a just, good, just a good saying, but it misunderstands its purpose as part of the Scriptures, a part of the Word of God that invites us to consider what it means to live a wise life. You see, I think one of the challenges we have in, in our culture, at least in a lot of modern culture, is that we tend to kind of segment and separate like parts of ourselves as if they're separate things. So we talk about our soul or our spirit as if it's a separate thing to our body or our mind. But like you can't get a mind without getting a whole person. <laughs> you can't get a body without getting a whole person. You can't get a soul without getting a whole. We are whole people. God created us all integrated, body, soul, spirit, mind, emotions, imaginations, like everything that makes up a human being is integrated. And the people of the Old Testament really kind of understood that and didn't separate those pieces out. But the other thing that can happen in our culture is we also then separate perhaps morality from goodness. And so there's like the right thing to do and there's the good thing to do. And we talk about them as if they're two separate parts. And really sadly, unfortunately, a lot of people in our world think that the Christian faith is purely about morality. It's just about the right thing. And in fact, they would see it as in opposition to the good thing. And so Christians can be perceived as boring, killjoys, you know, wowzers. That's a pretty old term now, isn't it? Um, but those who choose to do the right thing and are not interested in the good thing. The Old Testament writers of the wisdom literature would just shake their heads at us and say, what are you on about? You can't separate those things from one another. Goodness and rightness, they're all integrated. A life well lived, a flourishing life, the kind of life that God created us all to live is one that is both righteous and good, is one that is both the experience of joy and blessing and the experience of justice and equity. They're all of a piece. God created us as whole beings and He created us to live these whole lives of all that He intends us to be. I actually think Jesus picks up on this when He talks about in John 10, Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full, have it in abundance. There's different ways of translating that phrase there. Uh, some people translate it as eternal life. But again, the problem is eternal life sounds like it's just a life that goes on for a very long time. It becomes about quantity, right? Whereas life in abundance becomes about quality. And of course, what Jesus means is, both and, right? It's life that is both of everlasting quantity and of everlasting quality. It is the good life, the best life, the abundant life, the full life, the flourishing life. I don't have enough words for it. But Jesus would say, I have come that you might have life 
as God created it to be in all the fullness of everything that it's meant to be. And I think Jesus is drawing on this wisdom tradition that says that kind of life, that's a life that other people will look at and both say, wow, that is righteous and just and merciful and honouring. And it is blessed and joyful and full and meaningful and purposeful and delightful and amazing. They all kind of come wrapped up in one package. And so we come to these two particular poems that are not checklists for us to kind of tick ourselves up against or measuring sticks for us, but two examples to inspire us. And what I love about these two examples is they come in two different contexts. Obviously, the most the most obvious thing is one's male and one's female. But it's more than that. They seem to take place in different time periods. They have different uh, contexts in terms of region. It seems like one's maybe more slightly more urban and one's slightly more rural. These are two examples of two different people out of all the thousands who lived in right relationship with God and right relationship with others. And we see what it looked like in practice for them. And that's not supposed to make us go, well, oh, well, I better go get a distaff and a spindle, whatever they are, and make sure my hands are busy using them, right? What does it look like for me in my context to live out that same kind of life? These poems for me are more eulogies, if I can put it that way, words of praise about a life worth well lived to inspire and encourage us than they are, you know, rules or guidelines or checklists that we are supposed to live up to. So the beauty of wisdom literature is that this call to the good life, this call to live in right relationship with God, the call to follow Jesus, isn't a call to uniformity, right? If you follow Jesus, your life is not meant to look the same as mine, as I follow Jesus. There will be a lot we will share in common, right? <laughs> because Jesus is calling us to a life that, repli- that uh, reflects who He is, that reflects who God is, that lives in obedience and that lives in alignment with God's good intentions for the world. But it's going to be worked out differently because I'm a different human being to you. <laughs> my gender might be different. My context of where I live might be different. My personality is most certainly different to anyone else here. <laughs> you know, The way that I think and feel and engage with the world, the skills that I have, the opportunities that I have, the experiences that I have, the background that I have, they're all different to yours. And so when we're talking about the wisdom to live a good life, it's actually about what does it mean for you? What does it mean in your context, in your time, in your place, in your community? We are united as followers of Jesus. There is definitely unity for people who follow Jesus. But that unity is lived out with discernment and freedom in the unique circumstances in each of our lives. That's the call of the scriptures. That's the call of wisdom when it's put into practice, when it's applied. So these two poems, as I said, I believe are designed to inspire and encourage us. Not that our lives will each look exactly like this, but that ours too might be full, flourishing, purposeful, honouring and all that God is calling them to be. So I hope as we have a little bit of a look at them, obviously we're not going to get to every detail of both of these two lives tonight, but we're going to have a look at these two poems in a a couple of different ways. They both start with some opening words of honour or praise. So Proverbs 31 verse 10 starts with the words, Eset chayil, that's the Hebrew, right? (laughs) Which essentially translates to woman of strength. It's like a declaration over this woman's life. It's like someone sitting back at her looking at her life and going, wow, woman of strength. 
who else has seen one of those? That's kind of how the opening of that poem works. And similarly, but using different words, Psalm 112 starts with Ashrei Ish. Blessed is the man. (laughs) That man over there, wow. What a good life he has lived. How blessed is he? Both of these phrases are words of honour and blessing. They're like a pronouncement or a declaration. In the wisdom context, in the context of wisdom literature, they're like this summary declaration that here is a life worth paying attention to, a role model or an example, someone who has been honoured and can be an inspiration to us if we too would like to live that kind of life. Um, Eset Kail, the Proverbs 31, Rachel Held Evans used to translate that as like, you go girl, um, which is a bit of a you know, particular context, contemporary of way of putting it. But that idea of looking at someone's life and just going, yeah, good job, well done. As Jesus says in his parables, well done, good and faithful servant. Like you might see in a eulogy at a funeral when someone says, look at this person's life. You know, when you go to a funeral and you hear someone's eulogy, you're not meant to think, oh man, I should go away and do all the things that they did. Nobody thinks like that, do they? But hopefully you think, wow, how honouring, how wonderful. If it's a life well lived, what an opportunity to give this person the honour that they deserve. Let me say a couple of things about those two particular words because they are really classic wisdom words, Chayil and Ashray. And both of them could be used interchangeably um, for the different person in each poem. They don't mean the same thing, but I think both people in each poem are both Chayil and Ashray. They are both strong and blessed. Chayil, traditionally translated, and I think was translated in what we read as the wife of noble character, I would suggest woman of strength is far better. Chayil is used throughout the scriptures and translated as words like might, power, strength, army, even troops. In Judges 9, Gideon is called Chayil, and then we translate that as a mighty warrior. In 1 Samuel 9, Saul is called Chayil, and we translate that man of standing. In 1 Samuel 16, David is called Chayil, and it's translated as brave man. In only two places in the scriptures is that word translated as noble character. Here and in Ruth, the two times it's used for a woman. Now, without going on too much of a rant, I think that says more about the translator's assumptions, right, than it does about the meaning of the word. In fact, in Ruth, it's one of my little pet peeves about the translation of the book of Ruth, the word is used twice, once for Ruth and once for Boaz. She is a chayil woman, he is a chayil man. And the writer of Ruth is trying to make the point, you know, they belong together, right? Like they both are chayil. There's actually the whole point of the book is actually, you know, he is an honourable, righteous man who redeems her and she is an honourable, righteous woman who follows and they come together and they become the ancestors of King David and of King Jesus. And yet the NIV translates it as man of standing, woman of noble character. I would suggest even worse, the King James translates it as valiant man, virtuous woman. <laughs> Now, there's nothing wrong with being valiant and there's nothing wrong with being virtuous. In fact, I think all of us are called to be both of those things. But this word is actually, again, a word that's trying to capture the fullness of it. And sometimes what happens is when we look at a particular person in the Scriptures, we kind of, you know, limit the possibilities of what it might be for that person. And let's be honest, that's sometimes done to us as well. And so women are expected to be virtuous and men are expected to be valiant. And that has pros and cons for all of us, right? Because, you know, boys are not allowed to cry, right? You can't be a person who feels deeply. You've got to be strong and brave. And women, you know, you've got to be soft and tender. Well, actually, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. God calls all of us to the fullness of whoever he has created us to be. Yes, men and women are different, but we share a lot in common. We're all human. And you know what? 
Two women are very different and two men are very different and all of us are called to live out in our context, in our life, in the fullness of who God has made us to be, what it means to be chayil, what it means to be someone worthy of this declaration of strength and honour. In Psalm 112, Ashrei is the man. Ashrei uh, is this word that usually gets translated blessed. It's used a lot in the Psalms. Uh, not blessed as in like giving God blessing, but someone who has received God's blessing. It's someone whose life you look at and go, man, like they've, God's shown them favour. They are doing well. Like their life looks good. Um, but it's more than just, you know, they're pretty rich, they're good looking, they've got a nice looking partner. It's not that kind of blessed. It's actually someone who is living out the richness of God's mercy and grace in their life. This is the word that Jesus chooses to use in Matthew chapter 5 over and over again when he says, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Man, Jesus flips it on his head if we think it's about, you know, health, wealth and happiness. But this word is about recognising God's favour on someone's life and how they have embraced that and lived that out. It is one who is worthy of praise because of how they have responded to God. Both of these words are about speaking well of someone because of how God has been at work in their lives and how they have lived that out. And I reckon we're meant to read both of these poems and think, who wouldn't want someone to say that about me? Who wouldn't want to live a life that other people look at and go, wow, that's what life's meant to be lived like. That's a demonstration of God's favour. That's a demonstration of living life in right relationship with God and in right relationship with his people. See, sometimes I think even as the church, Christians can buy into this kind of false idea uh, that being a Christian is maybe more about ticking boxes and doing the right thing than living life to its full. And so we think, well, do other people really want to come and join us? Do they, you know, we really want to tell other people about Jesus. Do we really believe that it's going to make their lives better or are they happy as they are? The gospel, the good news is the invitation that life lived in right relationship with God, life lived as part of God's family in right relationship with one another, is the best life. It is life as it is created and intended to be. And so we get these two acrostic poems. The difference between them, you might have noticed they are different in length, is that uh, in Proverbs there's one verse per letter of the alphabet. Uh, in the Psalm there's two letters per verse. That makes sense. So like A and B are in verse one and then C and D are in verse two. But both of them run through the alphabet. And the purpose of using an acrostic is not just to make the poem pretty, but to give some sense of completeness. It's like the A to Z of a good life in this person's life in practice. I also think um, that it, it's a structure that says, you know, there's more I could say here. Right? If you write the A to Z of, to, of something, you're almost like by definition saying like, I'm just limiting myself to one good thing per letter. Right? But there's probably more. <laughs> but I want to tell you how great and how amazing this is. So I'm going to use the alphabet to give you the sense of fullness of it. Um, Psalm 119 does the same thing about how amazing God's word is. The Book of Lamentations does the same thing, maybe on a different side, about how terrible the tragedy is that's happened. But you use the alphabet to kind of give this sense of fullness. And yet I'm not even saying all that there is to say about this. One final thing before we look at some details of these poems. Uh, both of the poems... <laughs> 
conscious I've got a couple of language experts here, but uh, both of the poems use a particular verb form in Hebrew. That's uh, called the katal, which is basically the completed or the past uh, tense. That doesn't matter too much. But again, it, it says that it's not so much about what someone should do, but about what someone has done. So again, these are not poems that are meant to make you feel guilty. This is not a list of shoulds. This is an inspirational example of what someone has done. When I read Proverbs 31, I always go back to a funeral that I went to a number of years ago at Blackwood Hills Baptist for a woman by the name of Margaret Braley. She was 100 years old when she died. And I met her when she was in her 90s. So I only ever knew her as this lovely old lady in my church. And I went to her funeral and I learned that she was a doctor, she was a missionary, she was a mother, uh, she was a carer and she was so much more. And, you know, and I sat there at her funeral just going, man, I wish I'd met her you know, when she was 20 or 30 or 40 or 50. What a life. But I didn't go away from her funeral feeling guilty. I'm going, well, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a mother and I'm not a missionary and, and maybe I should be. And I went away inspired and thinking, wow, I wonder what people will say about me at my funeral. I hope that people will hear the story of my life and think, that sounds like, you know, she lived a good life. I wish I'd known her. I wish I'd known more about her. So there's something about these that are, that are almost like this. We're, like, we're at the funeral of these people from 3,000 years ago. <laughs> we're hearing the story of their lives and we're going, wow, I'm really inspired by that. I wonder what it means for me to have people speak of me like that. So what I do is a little bit maybe unexpected, but I'm going to try and look at these two poems together, but kind of in opposite order to each other. Because here's the weird thing about wisdom. <laughs> it can work in all kinds of ways. And actually, I think Psalm 31 goes in one order and it's like Psalm 112 almost goes in the opposite order. And I can prove that to you because <laughs> Psalm 112 starts by talking about this man as one who fears the Lord. And Proverbs 31 ends by talking about this woman who fears the Lord. And those are both really important places, right? You sum something up at the beginning, you sum something up at the end. It's a really important statement, but it happens in the opposite place in these two poems. But both of these poems ground this story of a life well lived, this eulogy, this word of honour and praise in the idea that these people feared the Lord. Or as Proverbs chapter 1 says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Everything else we're going to say about these people, all the details are found in these poems are actually summed up. The beginning at the end of this phrase that they feared the Lord. Their lives were grounded in their relationship with God. Because for biblical wisdom, right relationship with God is the starting point for a flourishing life. Now, the word fear, another one of those words we maybe need to do a little bit of talking about because words change meaning over time, right? And so fear in Australian context today is most commonly used for something that's scary, right? So you fear things that are scary. But of course, the English word fear has a, an older definition that more means to be in awe of, to reverence, to worship. And that's the kind of meaning that this word is talking about here. Think about how... Um, Words change meaning over time. It's a little bit of a tangent, but when I was looking into this this week, uh, do you know the word terrific? Terrific comes from the word terror, and it used to mean something awful, like terrible. 
Here's the other thing. The word awful used to mean something full of awe, something good, right? Words change meaning over time. And there's this, actually this classic recording of the, the story of the Hindenburg disaster, the blimp that, um, that caught fire and lots of people died. And as the blimp is going down, there was a man on the radio commentating and he's saying, this is just terrific. It's the most terrific thing I've ever seen. And you listen to it now and you think, what is this guy on? And, but because words change meaning over time. So we've got to be careful. <laughs> It's one of the things I love about uh, preaching. One of the things I love about studying and reading the Word of God, I said it's a tangent, but can I really encourage you when you read the Word of God, read it carefully, right? We've got to, like, the Word of God is, is made up of words and words are really significant and important. You want to take time with them and meditate on them and think about them and talk about them and ask questions about them. So when we talk about the fear of the Lord, we're actually talking about giving God His rightful place in our lives, ordering our lives in right relationship with Him. We're talking about worship, right? It's actually exactly what we've done here tonight in this gathering. And I love that we've done that and I love that we usually do that. When we gather together as a church, we actually start with worship, right? We order our gathering saying the most important thing to get right before we do anything else, before we talk about anything else, we want to actually get this right, get, you know, put God in his proper place, give him the honour and worth and worship he deserves so that everything else we do and talk about kind of flows out of that. That's our starting point. And that's how these, these two poems are working as well, grounding everything in the worship of God, orientating everything in that direction so that everything else flows out of that. So how do we express today the truth of the Christian life that the good life the flourishing life, life as it was intended to be lived, starts with worship. There's an interesting challenge for us to think about, that orienting your life in relationship to God, as we have done in our service tonight, is the beginning point of living life as it was intended to be lived. Because that's a pretty countercultural message. The message of our culture is life is intended to be lived to get the most out of it for yourself. Something like that, right? Yep, just make as much money as you can, have as much fun as you can, get, as, you know, get, get all you can, doesn't matter who you trample on, doesn't matter about anyone else, get what you can out of life. And that's a fundamentally different starting point. The invitation of the Bible is to say, there's nothing wrong with receiving good things and experiencing good things in our life, but the starting point needs to be getting this bit right, getting God in his proper place and therefore you in your rightful place in relationship to him. He is the creator. I am the created. He is the one worthy of all honour. I am the one who honours him. And then all else will flow out of that. So that's where Psalm 112 starts and Psalm 31 ends. (laughs) Then if you go one step in, so the second verse of Psalm 112, sorry, (laughs) and the second last verse of Proverbs 31, so we're going backwards, (laughs) They actually also share a common parallel here because the next thing they talk about is actually passing this on to their children. They talk about the next generation. So the woman and her children and the man and his children, they both have this picture of passing it on. And again, this is a really key theme in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Now, this is firstly about their own children. They are parents and this is talking about raising their own children in the faith and in the goodness and the wisdom that they've experienced. But in the Old Testament context, it's also a much wider picture of that because we're talking about a community that exists to raise up the next generation, that we should be always looking at who we are investing in and bringing along with us on the journey of faith. Wisdom is living your life forward so that others will be blessed too. And you might say, well, how else do you live your life but forward? <laughs> you know, too many people spend their lives living backwards, caught up in what's gone. 
We are called to live our lives forward, sowing, investing into what God is doing and into those who come after us. A life of wisdom is not a selfish life. It's a life that is in right relationship with God, but then is about investing in others so that they might continue and they too might be part of God's story. So that's kind of how they, they framed both of these two poems. Now, there's a lot of similarities between these two poems. Both of these, this man and this woman are praised for their generosity, for their diligence, for their justice, for the way that they work. And those are all key ideas found in the wisdom proverbs for how a life of wisdom is worked out in practice. So there's lots of overlaps between the two, as well as a few key differences. So let me just look at a few examples that I pulled out, maybe not quite so much in order, going a little bit backwards, but all around the place because they're not, you know, they're not written as parallels to each other. They're written as two different stories and yet there's a lot of things they share in common. So both of these two people work and receive the blessings from participating in work. Part of a life well lived, part of wisdom applied in practice is work. I don't know how you feel about that because work can sometimes have a bad reputation in our context and our culture. But you know that God created us to work. Work is something that God created in the very beginning. It was, uh, you know, <laughs> impacted by the things that went wrong in the world and perhaps made harder and more difficult. But work itself is a gift of God. God has created you to participate in this world in some way, shape or form. And I don't know what it looks like for you. I know for this woman, there's a lot of stuff that she does with her hands. As I said, there's a spindle and a distaff that she has. She buys a field, she makes clothes, she's sewing garments. There's a lot of kind of, she seems to be a really practical worker, a practical labourer. Those seem to be her gifts and also her opportunities that she has in her life. She also buys a field in verse 16 and out of the earnings of that field, she plants a vineyard. So she becomes a bit of a businesswoman uh, at some point in her life as well. Now we get less details about the man in Psalm 112, but similarly we are told that he has a life of wealth and riches where he has earned from what he has done, that he is able to provide for himself and his family. So part of the story of wisdom applied is what does it look like to do our work in right relationship with God and right relationship with one another, investing into the future to live the life that God has called us to live. And I hope this is something that you talk about regularly here and it should be part of something that we're talking about all the time in the church, uh, in Bible studies, in our discipleship, that work where you spend, let's be honest, a fair amount of the hours of your life during the week is a really big part of your discipleship, of you living life in relationship to God. It's not like you come to church on Sunday and that's where you worship God and then the rest of the week you go to work and that's completely separate. Remember that whole separating thing we do again? We do it with that too, right? The scriptures integrate all of who we are and say that our work, whatever it is we do with our time, and your work might be study, your work might be, you know, whatever season of life God has you in, what does it look like for you to work well in these kinds of ways? Let me move on a step. Both of the people in these two poems who are honoured for their wise lives are generous. So they don't just work to receive the benefits for themselves, but they work so that they might have enough to share with others. We're told in verse 20 that this woman, she opens her arms to the poor and her hands to the needy. Again, there's a lot of pictures of her hands, very practical it seems. 
Maybe that is, you know, actually inviting them into her family as she opens her arms or giving them food from her table with her hands. Very practical generosity that she demonstrates. And in Psalm 112, in verses 5 and in 9 again, he too is generous and lends freely and gives gifts to the poor. Now, I don't want to overread this too much because they're just summary statements, but this seems like a little bit of a different kind of generosity from him. So she's, her generosity seems to be quite practical, quite up close, like handing people the things. His is lending money. That's maybe done at slightly more of a distance. Right? Either's worse or better than the other, right? They're two different ways in different contexts, two different lives. But each of them is seeking to show generosity, to let the goodness that they've experienced overflow from them to others, right? That's kind of the principle at work here. That's what's meant to inspire us. Again, I don't know what generosity looks like for you. I don't know what opportunity you have, whether you have a lot of money (laughs) and you can be someone who just gives incredible gifts. Whether someone who says, well, I don't have really much money at all, (laughs) but I've got two hands, (laughs) And if there's someone in front of me who needs me to give them a hand to help them out with what they're doing, I can get in there, down in the dirt with them and do whatever it is that needs doing or something in between. But a life well lived, these two poems inspire us to, is a life of generosity, a life of overflow, a life that invests in others. A uh, couple of other things, I could be here all night so I won't take too long, but a couple of other things they both have in common. Both of them have a real strong confidence in the future, and they're not afraid of what is to come. So if you notice in verse 7 and 8, it says, he doesn't fear bad news. He knows that bad news might come, but he's not afraid of it. And then it also goes on to say he doesn't fear his enemies. Wow, that's amazing. Someone who actually has enemies, but's not afraid of them. <laughs> Someone who knows that bad news might come, but's not worried about it. It's not consumed by fear. Different phrase for her in verse 25, but I love this. She laughs at the days to come. <laughs> It's much more poetic. She laughs at the days to come. But again, this idea of a a lightness, even, like a carefreeness to her. She's not consumed by fear or worry about what what is coming next. Both of them have a confidence in the future. And I believe it comes from their trust in God because they are living out what they know he has called them to. And so they can go into the future without worry, without fear, with confidence. That is the wise, flourishing life that they are both praised for. Both of them also exercise justice. There's another practical way that that's outlived in the overflow. In verse 5, it says that he conducts all his affairs with justice. Again, probably gives us some hints without wanting to read too much into it of the kind of job that he has. He seems to have a, maybe a more powerful and important job, right? Because he, it needs to be done with justice. That's maybe the suggestion. I guess any job can be done with justice. But conducting his affairs with justice to me, you know, speaks of some kind of position where he could rip people off if he wanted to where he could show favouritism or he could be unfair to people, but he doesn't. He conducts his affairs with justice. Hers is a little bit different. It actually, in verse 23, towards the end of the poem, talks about her husband. Uh, And he is one of the elders who sits in the city gate. So you need to know a little bit of Old Testament context to understand that reference, (laughs) right? So in Old Testament cities, uh, they were walled cities. And in the entrance to the walls, like the walls of the city are the gates, which are basically usually like a zigzaggy kind of thing. So the walls are built like this, so that if to walk into the city, you kind of have to slow down. Enemies kind of attack you very quickly. And inside those zigzags, you have these little chambers where people would sit. And that's where the elders of the city would sit so that people would come to them when they had a dispute or when they wanted to get some wisdom and know what they should do, when they wanted to decide between kind of issues of neighbours, you know, like, you know, this peasant's ox scored my field, like, do I, do I deserve to be repaid for it or do they have to by the ox for me. Those are the kind of things that are happening in the Old Testament all the time. Right? Uh, and so her husband is one of those people who sits at the gate and administers justice, 
but she is someone who is blessing and honour to him. So again, both of them are connected to this idea of justice and has lived out in practice that they are doing right by others. So they're both generous and just looking after others. Now, those are some of the things they share in common. Then there are some differences. I've already said this along the way, but she does a lot of things with her hands. She's given a lot of praise for her physical actions. She selects materials. She works vigorously with her hands. I've said it three times now. She uses her distaff and her spindle. I tried to look it up. Couldn't really find out what a distaff is. Some people say it's like the base of a thing that like you turn it. Something to do with like making clothes in olden days. There's my quick Melinda summary for you. But she's working really practically with her hands. He's actually more honoured for his heart. He talks about his heart being steadfast and secure. I'm totally speculating here, but again, suggest to me that maybe he has a job that is less practical. There's actually more about making decisions or more about doing things that impact other people in different ways. So he's maybe a little bit more more distant. Maybe he's in a leadership position, more powerful, again, conducting his affairs with justice. But what I love about it, again, is we get two different stories. We get a story of someone who's working on the ground practically and we get a story of someone who's maybe in a more powerful position of leadership and yet both of them are praised in the same way because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're a tradie or a politician or a teacher or a doctor or a retiree or a mum or a dad or a child or a student. It doesn't matter where you find yourself and what role you have in life in this season or the next, you have the opportunity to live out right relationship with God and right relationship with others, to be generous, to be just, to show blessing, to receive blessing, to work and participate in God's kingdom purposes. And finally, uh, we're told that he is gracious and compassionate in character. You love have to have people say that about you at the end of your life. I look back at you and you go, when I have to sum him up <laughs> as a person, the words I'd use for him, gracious and compassionate. Wow. On the other hand, she is actually called someone who speaks with wisdom and teaches faithfully. So specifically seems to be about her words, what she had to say and how she taught others. That's what people remember about her. That'd be great to be known for as well. <laughs> Both are good. <laughs> Some might resonate more with some of you than others. Both of them are meant to inspire and encourage us. So just two things I want to finish with. One is, as I said, that these are to inspire and encourage us. So that's where I want to finish. But before we get there, I think there's a question that's been begged by this passage that I think is begged by the wisdom literature in general that really comes home to me tonight because of what Nick was talking about. And the question is this, do these poems promise prosperity? So these poems promise that if you follow Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you live life as God intended, everything will go well for you. I can't say that to you. I try and imagine preaching this sermon tonight in Afghanistan or Myanmar or Israel or Palestine or Yemen or Ethiopia. And I know that my brothers and sisters in there preach these passages, right? That's not the promise. So please don't hear me saying everything will go well for you. And so when something goes wrong, you're going to come back to me and say, hey, Melinda, you told me that everything would go well for me. That's actually not how wisdom literature works. There's a difference between promising that everything will be fine and this idea of flourishing and living life as God intended it to be lived. I was talking to a friend of mine about this who's just spent the last decade working in Tanzania and this idea of what does a flourishing life look like in that context and how different it is to what a flourishing life looks like here. We have to recognise the reality of suffering in the world. 
But we also have to recognise the reality of suffering in this room. Some of you might be experiencing really difficult relationships and brokenness in your family or real loneliness or real challenges at work or physical or mental illness. I'm not promising you and the Bible is not promising you that all that goes away. In fact, both of these poems contain clear messages that life is not easy all the time for either of these people. He has enemies, right? I don't have any enemies, do you? Like he's got literal enemies, people who are trying to bring him down, maybe even people who are trying to kill him. She has some struggles. Talks about her children going out in the snow and being okay because they've got the bright coloured clothing. Perhaps suggests that they're experiencing poverty. There are plenty of hints in both of these poems that life is not always rosy. They have both seen difficult circumstances. So while the focus of both poems is honour, it comes in the context of recognising the brokenness and the challenges of the world they live in. You know, the fact that they're both called to justice (laughs) recognises that they live in a world of injustice. They live in a world of pain. Recognition of the brokenness in our world today and in our lives here needs to be made. I don't want to be heard as as ignoring that and wisdom doesn't ignore that. In fact, we only need wisdom because of the brokenness of the world we live in. And so the wisdom literature is not a simplistic promise that nothing will go wrong in your life. But it is a promise that God will honour and delight in those who honour and delight in him. And I'm pretty sure, in fact, I know because I've spoken to some of my brothers and sisters from places like Myanmar who tell me that in the darkest moments, when they were afraid for their lives, when they were seeing their families suffer terribly, knowing they had put their trust in God is the very thing that got them through. So these are not checklists. (laughs) They're not even promises, but they are pictures painted of lives where people apply their faith and wisdom to their daily tasks in their context and they are shaped by God in all they do, in who they are. They give us this incredible imagination in those particular contexts for a flourishing life. What would it look like to write a poem like this about a life well lived in this community today? (laughs) Who does it make you think of? Who are the people whose lives you have seen and you want to honour and you say, wow, Esek Chayil, Ashrei Ish. Person of honour, man of strength, woman of valour, blessed are you. Who comes to mind that inspires you because they live out their faith in practice in a way that is good and worthy of honour and brings blessing and justice to others? Emma mentioned that on the camp last week you did the Christ candle exercise where you took that opportunity to speak words of honour and blessing over one another. Don't just do that on a camp. It might be that there's someone here tonight that you could go up to and say, I want to honour you. I want to bless you because you inspire me by your example. The challenge, of course, is what about you? What life do you want to live? What do you want people to say about you? Maybe when you die or maybe just tomorrow. (laughs) Let's not get too morbid. What would you like other people to see in you that makes them say there's a life well lived? Maybe another way of putting it, do you actually want to get the most out of life? (laughs) Do you want to live the life that God created you to live? Do you want fulfilment and purpose? Because if you do, it's not found in all the things that the world will tell you to strive after. 
the scriptures say it is found in the fear of the Lord and the practical living out of his wisdom in whatever context you find yourself in this day, this week, this year, this life. And so I want to pray for you. Uh, I want to pray that you might uh, have been encouraged and inspired by these two people that we've never met. Maybe we'll meet them one day in the new creation. I'm sure we will. <laughs> and go up to them and say, hey, yes, it, Kail. But may their example not only inspire us, but challenge us to consider what it means for each one of us. Let me pray. God, I thank you for the wisdom literature of the Bible um, and the way that is really practical and grounded uh, and tells us about life in, you know, in ancient times, but life lived with generosity and justice and wisdom and delight and joy and work and hope and faith. And I pray that as we hear these words of wisdom tonight, as we consider this man and this woman and their stories, their lives, their poems that others wrote to honour them, we might be encouraged and inspired. God, for each one of us here tonight, would you show us what it means to apply wisdom to our own lives? A wisdom that begins with worship, that begins with knowing who you are and responding to who you are. And a wisdom that overflows in the way we live our lives, that others might be blessed, might be honoured, might delight and might be inspired even by us, that they might want to say, wow, look at that life well lived. God, I pray that what it is you want to say to each one of us tonight would continue to stay with us by your Holy Spirit and speak into our lives in practice that we might be the people that you've created and called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people, and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.